0: Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you would like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharingChurch.com. Now we hope you learned from and enjoy today's message. our first uh, Peter series called "Exiles." We're going to wrap it up today, So grab your Bibles, grab your devices, turn to First Peter chapter five. We'll be in First Peter five today. Uh, first Peter five. We're going to start in verse six as we wrap this up uh, today. Again, I said it earlier, but I just I cannot be more grateful. Uh, to you as a church for letting us walk through books of the Bible. I know for a lot of us it might be easier to do a three or four week series where we cover some topics and you feel like it actually matters to you, but I think this matters to us. This is what matters. And so I'm thankful um, for the church who is willing to, and even I think gladly even, walks through books of the Bible. We're about to finish another one, another one. First Peter chapter five. Uh, we're going to finish that chapter to finish the entire book today which means next week we begin a new series. So next week we're gonna start 2 Peter. We're gonna start 2 Peter. The title of that series is Make Every Effort. It's a quote by Dallas Willard that says, God's grace is, not opposed, uh, is opposed to earning, it's not opposed to effort. And so throughout 2 Peter, uh, Peter again writes to these same churches and he tells them, hey, now that I've written you this first one, here's what I'm gonna tell you to do. Make every effort to add to your faith. So that's what the next, the next series will be, five or six weeks through Second Peter, and then we'll dive into Advent uh, with, that, um, with that season coming up here shortly. First Peter chapter five, let me give us some context so if you've missed any of it. First Peter is written by a guy named Peter. Uh, Peter was an apostle, a follower of Jesus, Uh, one of the closest of the followers of Jesus. Peter, James, and John were in that inner circle. They got to go on all the cool field trips, like to the Mount of uh, Transfiguration, all kinds of cool stuff. Peter and John, uh, also ones that Jesus took with him to to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with him on the night that he would be arrested. I mean, Peter's in that inner circle, particularly Peter and John. So he is devoted to Jesus, a passionate man, passionate follower of Jesus, Uh, This is kind of who he is. He's a fisherman, uh, so he's good at that. He's good at using his hands. He's good with those types of things. He's not always as good with using his brain. Anybody relate to that? No elbows, you know who you are. Uh, But he's good with that. He's good with action. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. He's passionate uh, about that. Followed Jesus for three and a half years. Jesus is crucified on the cross the night that he's arrested Peter in his great passion and uh, braggadocio decides that he's gonna deny actually knowing Jesus three times. He just can't handle it. The pressure of what was happening denies Jesus, spends the next few days in complete and utter shame and guilt and darkness. And many of us can relate to that feeling. Like we've just let him down. Jesus, in John chapter 21, restores Peter. He meets him on the beach, they have breakfast together, and Jesus restores Peter in one of the most miraculously beautiful passages of scripture to me in John chapter 21, and Jesus restores Peter and then gives him his ministry back, and he says, if you love me, you'll feed my sheep. In other words, if you love me, go lead, go pastor. Peter and James now are were pastors of the church in Jerusalem, the first Christian church in Jerusalem. Uh, Peter is a pastor there does that for a number of years. We pick up 1 Peter uh, in the early to mid 60s AD. Not the 1960s, that'd be a whole different book. You know what I'm saying. But in the 60s, uh, 60s AD is where Peter um, writes this book. Now, uh, timelines get a little bit tricky here, but most scholars would agree this happens around the, the reign of Emperor Nero. Nero comes to power in 54 AD. He is just shy of turning 17 and he is now the leader of the Roman Empire. You won't trust a 16-year-old with your car, and yet the Roman Empire trusted itself to Nero at 16, and so he leads, but he's a reluctant leader, doesn't really wanna be a leader, he'd rather be famous, he'd rather be um, an actor or a playwright, he plays the harp, and he likes to dress up and act, and this is who he is, doesn't really wanna lead, but reluctantly, he leads. About 64 AD, there's a big fire that happens in Rome in the theater district, Nero feels like it's an attack on him. They're trying to figure out who started the fire. Billy Joel knows, but the rest of us don't really know. And so he starts to uh, try to figure out who starts the fire. And then, well done, everyone. <laughs> so he, uh, Nero, uh, to earn some of his prestige back, because people have started not to like him, blames the fire on the Christians. And in doing so, now he turns the Roman Empire against this small sect of believers in Jesus, and so the persecution is happening. At this point, we believe this is written probably right around that time of the fire and, and all of this happening, and so there's persecution coming. I don't know if on a spring day, if you wake up, you can smell the rain coming. Anybody like that? Some of you are so old, you feel it in your knees. You feel it coming. Like you, it's. I feel it. It's going to rain. You're like no, no, Grandpa, it's not. It's not going to rain. Sure enough, it rains. Uh, This is what Peter, he smells the persecution coming. He just, he feels it coming. So he writes this preemptively to the churches in the Roman Empire to remind them, first of all, of who who they are. And because of who they are, here's how we live. And he wraps this up, chapter five. He finishes this with such power here. Here in 1 Peter 5. The context, remember from last week, he speaks to the pastors, to the elders, and then to those who are younger spiritually to follow those who are elders. And he makes this transition, verse six. Humble yourselves, Peter says, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he, God, may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Verse eight. Be sober-minded, you've heard that before. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion, the power, supreme power, forever and ever, amen. And then the final greetings, he says, this is by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him. So Peter dictated it, Silvanus probably wrote it or delivered it, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon So scholars disagree a bit here. I lean in this direction, that Babylon is a code name for Rome. Based on other New Testament letters and kind of the culture of what's happening, I think this is a code name for Rome. She who is is, I think, a reference to the church in Rome. So he's sending this from the church in Rome. That's my belief. um, Who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, as does Mark. This is John Mark, who followed along with Paul my son, or son in the faith. Verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So he wraps up this letter with a few stern reminders. Last week, I think we used this G.K. Chesterton quote. I'm gonna put it on the screen again and just talk briefly through it. He says, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. The point Chesterton is making is that following Jesus, it's not that people follow Jesus and do it the best they can and they devote themselves to it and then decide it's not worth doing. What he's saying is people start to follow Jesus, but when when the going gets tough, they jump ship. They never actually committed themselves to it. What he's saying is actually, if we would follow the Christian ideal, we would follow Jesus, we would lack nothing we would not be left wanting. In fact, it would be exactly what we need in the world in which we live. The problem is not this. The problem is our hearts and our devotion to it. And in seasons of suffering, we are tempted to jump ship rather than to grab an oar and start paddling harder. So Peter writes this letter to the church churches in Rome reminding them it's going to get tough. Don't jump Stay in it. There's reward on the other side. So let's study this passage together. Uh, I'm gonna ask in a a little while just for some participation here. So it's an all skate, man. We're all in. And so I need us all to be in. It's gonna push us as far as confession and repentance and vulnerability, which already scared half of you. Uh, Not that far, but it's gonna push us a bit. But I think it's important for us, if we're going to make it, if we're gonna be the church God has called us to be, we're gonna have to take some steps in this direction. So let's study together. 1 Peter chapter five, verse six, Peter says, humble yourselves therefore. Now this therefore links us back into verse five, where Peter says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you've been in seasons of suffering or persecution, any kind of suffering, what happens is you begin to believe that God has opposed you. He is against you. What that is, is that's pride. God opposes pride. But to the humble, he gives grace. Therefore, Peter says, and the logical conclusion of that statement is, well, then humble yourself. If you want God with you, then humble yourself. It's pretty obvious. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now, this word humble is the verb. This is the imperative. So you English nerds are gonna love this here in a second. This is the verb. The verb, the command, is to humble yourself, okay? Keep that in mind, that's the imperative. The command is to humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. If you're like me, what's true is that in seasons of suffering... Um, I don't find humility in my heart. I find pride. Anybody else find that in seasons of suffering? And it manifests itself in a few different ways, ways that we think are contrary to pride that actually are some of the more prideful ways we can live our lives. The first way for me that arrogance reveals itself in seasons of suffering is entitlement. I begin to say and feel things like, I didn't deserve this. Anybody else have that? I don't deserve this. I mean, I'm the good one. I'm the good son, why why do I get this? That's pride, that's arrogance, thinking there's something else that I deserve. I'm entitled to better than this, I don't deserve this. That's pride manifests itself. Secondly, pride can manifest itself in self-pity, which feels like the opposite, but it's not. Any kind of navel-gazing, eeyore, head down, we say things like, well, this is all my fault. And we say things like this, well, of course this would happen to me. Anybody relate to that? In seasons of suffering, well, yeah, of course this would happen to me. I mean, look at the rest of my life. Nothing else has gone my way, so why would this go my way? That's pride, it's making much of yourself. I think the third way that it can manifest itself is through isolation. These are the things that we say and believe. We say, well, I'm the only one who ever has to do this. Why am I the only one going through this? Why is it always worse for me? Or we say things like, I know that God is good, but he's usually good for other people, not for me. That's pride. Pride is making much of ourselves. It's, it's thinking of ourselves highly or often. This is what this is. So in seasons of suffering, if you find yourself like me, you find yourself there. This command is for us, humble yourself. Son, daughter, humble yourself. Humble yourself. But he says to do it under the mighty hand of God. Uh, mighty hand of God is a euphemism. It's a phrase particularly from, borrowed from the Old Testament. God's mighty hand is used throughout the Old Testament. It's always in reference to God's sovereign providence. In other words, it's always a reference to God's plans for our lives. So what Peter is saying is, in seasons of suffering, when you're tempted to well up with pride and entitlement and self-pity and isolation, he says, instead, humble yourself under the plan of God. Submit yourself to the mighty hand of God. Let, Let him hold you down. Submit yourself. Make yourself lower than God's mighty hand. Submit yourself. But then he gives us purpose, and he says, so that, so that what? at the proper time. And I don't like that phrase at all. I want to be at my time. Because often the proper time is a lot longer than what I decide would be my proper time. It's in the, the very same way that you tell your kids, hey, I'll be with you in just a minute. What I mean is in three and a half hours, I will be with you. I don't wanna deal with it right now. But God says, at the proper time, when the time is right, uh, Galatians chapter four, the idea is that when the time is pregnant, when it's ready for birth, at the proper time, God may exalt you. The word exalt means to lift up or to bring to standing. So use your uh, sanctified imagination here and I want you to think about God's hand. The very same hand that's holding you down is the hand that will then bring you back up. The hand closest to you in your suffering, holding you down is the hand you grab onto when it begins to lift up. Does that make sense? Same hand. The mighty hand of God. Humble yourself, submit yourself to God's sovereign providence. Yeah, this is awful right now. But what have we learned? That God's using this refining fire to bring about something in you that, uh, that pleasure and success would never bring. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that at the proper time he might exalt you or lift you up. Now notice this, you don't exalt yourself. I don't exalt myself, God does it. My problem is that I decide when the time is over of my suffering and I begin to exalt myself. And I find myself in more self-induced suffering than I was walking in before. Humble yourself. Then verse seven, he says, casting. Now this is a participle. Casting, I-N-G, casting. This is not the command. The command is to humble yourself. Does that make sense? What he's telling us now is how do you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? You cast all your anxieties on him. What does it look like to be humble in seasons of suffering? Well, verse 7 tells you you cast all your anxieties on him. You don't gossip, you don't vent on Facebook or Instagram or while you're dancing on TikTok. Cast your anxieties on him. You don't call his mama. Cast your anxieties on him. Casting all your anxieties of him. So the imperative, the command is to humble yourself. Now, how do we do it? Well, we cast our anxieties on him. Casting is a fishing term. It's how you would cast a net or cast a line. So, I mean, you throw it. Throwing your anxieties on him. Now, look at this. It's gonna be important for us in the next uh, verse. Anxieties... In the Greek it comes from the root word, uh, marizo, which means to divide or to separate into parts. Even clinically, anxiety is the failure to see the whole and to only see the parts. That's what creates anxiety. So think about it this way: What keeps you up at night when maybe you have been seasons where you can't pay uh, the rent? What keeps you up at night is not the problem. What keeps you up at night is what the problem causes for other problems in your life. The rent. Well, if if I can't pay the rent, it must mean that I'm not making enough money, which means that I need a new job. And if I need to get a new job, i got to quit this job. But if I quit this job, what job am I going to have? Because I'm not qualified for the next job, but I need to find another job that pays more, but I don't have a degree to get that next job, so I have to go back to school, which is going to cost me even more money to pay for school to get a new job, to have the money to pay for rent. And then if I borrow money from somebody to pay for rent, I gotta pay it back for them. Or if I just move my budget around to pay for rent, then I can't pay for food, how am I gonna eat? Does that make sense? So now, the problem was, I can't pay for rent, but now it's a million problems you have. That is anxiety. Some of you are already anxious just walking through that whole situation. <laughs> right, it's, that, this is what anxiety is. It's separating things into pieces. But Peter says, throw them all on Jesus. All of them. The illogical, emotional ones, throw them on him. How do you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? Well, you begin to cast your anxieties on him. And then he gives us a why, which is interesting. He doesn't point to God's power doesn't point to him as creator, doesn't point to him as sovereign, doesn't point to him as the one who can fix all things and redeem and restore all things. Why do you cast all your cares upon Jesus? Because he loves you. Because he cares for you. Is he creator? Is he sovereign? Is he, uh, does he have providence? Yeah. Can he fix anything? Yes. But the greatest reason to cast your anxieties on Jesus is because he cares for you you and some of us need to hear that this morning in your season of suffering he is for you he loves you and you can cast your cares on him not because you pay him to see him once a week for an hour but because he loves you casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you In seasons of suffering we're tempted to believe he doesn't and peter is reminding the churches in rome he does and that's why you can cast all your cares from him god loves you don't be anxious He is for you. Next imperative is in verse eight. Be sober-minded, be, or by being, watchful. Here's your next command, be sober-minded. This idea of sober meant then what it means to us now. It's nothing in excess. Clear thinking, clear spirit is the idea. Seasons of suffering were tempted to drown our sorrows, to escape them. What happens is, we can no longer be watchful if we're drunk. You can't be watchful if you're drunk on alcohol or you're, you're stoned or you're high on marijuana. You, you can't be watchful if you're addicted to social media. You can't be watchful if you're addicted to pornography or you're addicted to your phone or to the games on your phone. You can't be watchful if you're addicted to gossip and talking about other people. You cannot be watchful. Be sober-minded. How? By being watchful. The same word Jesus uses in Matthew 26 when he tells Peter and John to come pray with him. And he says, Watch, watch. And he tells them, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh wants to move away, wants to disconnect, wants to go to sleep. But the command of God is to be sober minded, be watchful. Why? Well, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, catch what's happening. In verse seven, uh, he said, don't be anxious. And then in verse eight, he told you, there's a lion outside to kill you. No one else, just me. That's not helpful, Peter. Not at all. Hey, hey, don't be anxious. There's a wild beast that wants to eat you head to toe. Be cool, dude, be cool. But I need you to see what's happening here. Your adversary, the devil. Now, it feels more anxiety-inducing than anxiety-reducing, doesn't it? But notice what's happening. Anxiety is taking all the pieces of the problem and what Peter's saying, no, 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 you've got one problem. And it's the devil. Your problem isn't the rent and paying the bills and your marriage and your kids and school and your job and finances. And uh, it's not that. The problem is you have an adversary. That's your problem. So take your eyes off the problems and fix your eyes on the adversary is what he's saying. This is anxiety reducing. Takes all of your problems and you know what's behind those problems? Him. So be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, verse nine, the next imperative, resist him. Cool. Resist the lion, resist the enemy. Well, how? He tells you, being firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the rest of the world. Humble yourself, be sober-minded, resist the enemy by being firm in your faith and knowing. Now notice here, Peter says to resist the enemy by digging in your heels. Not by running. Dig in your heels. Firm in the faith, firm in truth. You wanna know why the enemy overtakes us from time to time? Because we don't have our feet planted in truth. You've got your feet planted in Oprah. You've got your feet planted in whatever uh, the next influencer on social media says, whatever your friends at school say, whatever your boss says, whatever you've read in some self-help book, and so you can't resist the enemy. How do you resist the enemy? You plant your feet in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because everything else isn't gonna help you. You resist the enemy firm in your faith. In 2011, Meredith and I got to go to Kenya Worked for an organization that builds sustainable communities and shares the gospel in Kenya. We went over there for a couple of weeks and um, we had a few experiences there. I've shared one of them going through Amsterdam, which I'm not allowed to share anymore, uh, Meredith has told me. But there's some other stories um, that I would like to share before I can no longer share stories with you. One of them is, uh, I remember we went to some villages to eat and families were so hospitable. They have, they have nothing, but they wanna feed you dinner. And so we'd meet the family, and we'd meet um, their pets, and then we'd meet all of them, and then we'd have dinner, and then we'd realize a pet was missing, and we'd realize it's because we ate the pet for dinner. So that would happen. We'd have these experiences like that, and at one point, we get to go to a Maasai village. So we meet Maasai warriors. I think I have a picture of a Maasai warrior, a herdsman, so we pull in on this van, this bus and we pull in to go visit them and um, they're nomadic. I mean, this is, it's like the Aborigines in Australia. This is who the Kenyan people are, they're Maasai warriors. They still dress like this, they still live off the land and they're herdsmen, they're shepherds. And so we're on the bus and um, a man like this walks up on the bus and our uh, person leading our trip says, hey, I'm gonna introduce you. This is one of the Maasai warriors. He's gonna be your tour guide throughout Throughout the time, and he stands at the front of the bus, and he goes, "Hi, my name is Steve." <laughs> sure, it is, buddy. Sure. So Steve um, was our was one of our. Uh, he just led us around this Maasai area, and we saw a number of different things. But the Maasai people are herdsmen, and so they are keenly aware of lions. I mean, lions are the predator of all predators there in that area of Kenya. And so they're aware of them. And so they know certain ways the grass lays down, it's a lion, or when it moves this way, when the wind blows, where to find lions. And so they've been trained in this. They are herdsmen with this. There's a herdsman, um, a particular one in Kenya who was interviewed recently talking about lions. And he says this. He says, if you see a lion, you must stop and look at it straight in the eyes. You must never run. I disagree, I think you should always run. (laughs) But I'm not a Messiah herdsman, so I have no ground to stand on. The point he makes is that you'll never outrun a lion. The only thing you can do is stand your ground. Look him straight in the eyes. You must never run. So when Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith, what he's saying is, you look the adversary straight in the eyes. And you remind him with the truth who you are, who your God is, and who he is. And he has no business in your home. He has no business with you. You are not his. You are saved and set apart. You stare the lion in the eyes because he's got nothing on you. And he might nip and he might growl, but there's nothing he can do to you. But when you run and your back's to him, good luck. So you stare the lion in the eyes. Peter says, resist him firm in your faith. Church, this morning, you need to do it today. Even right now. In your heart, tell him. Tell him truth. Tell him what the scripture says about your God and your king. Tell him who he is. Tell him he had asked permission to even mess with you. He's not in control. Your God is. He's got nothing on your marriage. Your God brought you together. He's got nothing on you. He's got nothing on your kids. You've prayed for them. He's got nothing on them. He can go. If you feel so inclined, you can tell him where to go. That's where he lives. You can say it to him. Genesis 4, um, Cain and Abel are brothers and sons of Adam and Eve, and they come to bring sacrifices, offering to the Lord. And God accepts Abel's offering, and um, Cain's he doesn't. And Cain has this moment of like, this isn't fair, because I feel like mine's better. In Genesis chapter 4, God says to him, if you do well, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You must stare it straight in the eye. You must rule over it. It's time to stop playing with the lion like he's a kitty, and you rule over that lion. You've got the power of the Spirit of the living God in you, you can rule over the lion. As a follower of Jesus, you and I are no longer slaves to sin, we are free to choose to no longer sin. So you stare your addiction in the face, you stare your marital problems in the face and you tell the enemy he has no business there. You're not his rule over it. Now, you're gonna walk out to your cars and you know where the sin is crouching for you? You probably do know. It's in your car, it's in your home, it's late at night with your phone waiting for you, rule over it. Suffering makes us vulnerable to sin and Peter is saying, you stand there firm in your faith. But then he adds this piece, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The Messiah people, the herdsmen, they're so adept at fighting off the lion that when one sees a lion, he'll make a call and the other herdsmen in the village will rush to his aid. And some more experienced herdsmen will know how to handle particular situations with the lion. So they gather together. Now it's not just two eyes at the lion. Now Now it's 12. Now it's 18. Now it's 24. And they're fixed on the lion. The lion has nowhere to go. This is what Peter is saying. You need to remember, you are not alone. You are not the only one suffering. You are not the only one in hardship. You're not the only person to ever go through something like this. You're not left behind. You are not forgotten. You are not somehow uniquely the enemy of God. You are not. You are loved by him. He cares for you. This is the beauty of the gathering of church. It reminds you, you're not alone. The motto of the church should be, yep, me too. Oh, you've got an addiction? Yeah, I know what that's like. Oh, your marriage is falling apart? Yeah, I've been there. You're not alone. A few years ago when I was in my own self-induced suffering and dark season, an older man in our church said, hey, will you wanna come over for breakfast? I said, I don't wanna go anywhere. I don't wanna see anyone. But he's persistent. So I went. He took me um, downstairs in the basement to a room where he just sits and studies and for four hours began to tell me his story. And he said, you're gonna make it. You're okay. God loves you. You aren't thrown to the trash heap. You wanna know how I know it? Because I've been where you are. I've been there. And you're gonna be okay. And God loves you and he's for you. Then let me give you some scripture. Here's what you need to memorize. Here's what you need to read. Two other men just call me, tell me similar things. I was just empowered. These Messiah herdsmen came around me and said, I know the enemy, I've seen him too. He's been in my village. He's come to my house. You know what I did? Here's what I did. Now you do it. I'm not alone. You're not alone. You're not facing the adversary alone. There are people who have faced the same thing at the same place in the same time. This is a testimony of togetherness that the church must have. If you've come here today and you just put on the face because you feel like you have to, stop. You don't have to. Of all places in the world, you can be you here. You can share your struggles and your trials here. You can share it here. And if you can't, you tell the elders who's keeping you from doing it, we'll have a conversation. This is the place of all places that you should be able to come and say, I'm hurting, I need something, I need someone. And in God's sovereign providence, I guarantee you he has placed someone in this church with that experience to help walk with you through it what he's done. And you can text and you can call and you can email. This is the gathering of the called out ones. So listen, I'm going to ask us now, people need to see this today. I don't know who needs to say, I just feel like somebody needs to see this today. If you've ever been in a season of your life where you've walked through sickness, debilitating sickness or a diagnosis that uprooted your life. Would you stand up? Would you stand? If you can, would you stand? If there's ever been a sickness that you've been diagnosed with, somebody in your family has been with, you can stand up. In boldness, have you ever, or someone has been diagnosed with cancer, a loved one, been given a a terminal illness, anything like that, stand up. Now look around, people. Look at me. Look around. You're not alone. You're not alone. If you're standing and you feel like even in the midst of all that, God brought you through it, would you keep standing? Praise the Lord, church. This is the testimony of the goodness and grace of God. You can be seated. Is there anybody here this morning who would say that you've walked in seasons of your marriage where you didn't think you were going to make it? Would you stand? Say, no, I've walked through some dark stuff in my marriage, and I wasn't sure we were ever gonna make it through this. How many of you, by the grace of God, You've made it. Would you stay standing? Now look, church. Look, church, come on. Listen, if you're in it right now, these people would tell you, you're gonna make it. You're gonna be okay. God is good. You can be seated. How many of you have walked through seasons with your kids where you were at your wits and just didn't know how to parent them anymore? Would you stand and say, yeah, I hit that season. Or maybe you're in it now. I I don't know what to do. I don't know how to parent and raise them. Okay, there's a lot. Do you see what's happening? Do you see, church? You're not alone. You're not alone, and God will bring you through. And I don't know when, but at the proper time, he will exalt you. You can be seated. How many of you this morning have walked through seasons of finances when you didn't know how you were gonna pay your bills and how you were gonna put food on the table? Would you stand? Financially, you didn't know how you were ever gonna make it. Look around, church. How many of you, by the grace of God, would say, we made it? I don't know how, but we made it. Just stay standing. If you would say, yeah, we've made it. Praise the Lord, look at this. This is the testimony of the people of God. This is who he is. You're not alone. People are undergoing the same thing. You can be seated. How many of you have walked in seasons of sin and addiction? Would you stand and just say, yeah, I've walked through addiction. I've walked in it, I've faced things. Look around church. How many of you would say that maybe you're not there yet, but you've felt the presence of God and he's with you in it? Anybody would you keep standing for that? Praise the Lord. You can be seated. Look at me, you're not alone, you aren't the only one. You aren't the only one suffering. You're not the only one going through hard times. There are people around the world in the brotherhood who are facing the same kinds of sufferings you are facing, and this is why we gather together, church. This is why one way matters. This is why our small groups matter. It's why we do women's Bible studies and men's Bible studies. It's why we do confession and repentance. It's an ongoing ethic that, yes, can be before the Lord, but I'm telling you, you find freedom when you tell somebody else. There's not a soul in here who's been saved because of their good deeds. We are broken people, brought together by the grace of God, saved by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That's it, that's the only thing. Suffering, yeah, me too. Sin, yeah, me too. You're not alone. You can tell the enemy you're not alone. And you can tell them the stories you've heard of people in here and you can tell them tell the enemy what God thinks of you. That's why the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 10 says, let us consider how to stir up one another towards love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Then he says, all the more as you see the day, the day of the Lord drawing near. You know what accompanies the day of the Lord? Suffering. And I know the temptation and suffering and pain is to run from this place and run from our God, but I would tell you, you'll never find freedom there. You'll never find restoration there. You'll never find redemption there. Run here in church. May we be a place that people run to and not from. God, help us be that place. Let's continue in verse 10. And after... There is an after. You hear me? There's an after to your story. There's an after to your suffering. There will come a day that you will look back on and not be in the midst of a look forward to. There will be a day that you can say after. I know you don't feel like it today, but there's an after coming. There's an after. And the after may not be here on this planet in this life, but it's coming after you have suffered a little while. Now again, it sounds like the way I talk to my kids. What does a little while mean? I don't know. Because the day of the Lord is like a thousand years, which isn't very hopeful for us, but it's true. But at the proper time. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, not some grace, not a little bit of grace, all grace. The one who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, he'll do it. The same hand that holds you down is the same hand that lifts you up. He himself will restore, confirm, strengthen and establish. To restore is to set a broken bone. He will set your broken bones. If your bones's been broken and suffering, the great physician will set your bones. And after he sets his bone, he will con- your bones, he will confirm or settle your mind set your bone, he'll ease your spirit, he will make you stronger, and then he will lay a foundation for the next phase of your ministry and your life. God will do it. That's what Peter is saying, yes, church, suffering's coming, but what else is coming is the after of the suffering, and in the after, God restores, confirms, strengthens, and establishes. It's coming. And there are people in this room who will testify to that fact today. This is what he does. He restores what's broken. He confirms what's anxious. He strengthens what's weak and he establishes what has been laid bare. He does. Story's not over. Now, real quick, in context of 1 Peter beginning talking with the pastors, I I would say this to you. The pastors must walk through and admit their suffering in order to be established. A pastor who has not suffered is probably not established to lead. And verse 11, he closes, to him, to God, the God of all grace who's called you to his eternal glory, be the dominion forever and ever, amen. He has supreme power and may he forever. Then I wanna finish with verse 12. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written, written briefly to you Exhorting and declaring that this story, this gospel is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now we read Sylvanus and we don't know what to think. Sylvanus is actually the name that we know of Silas. Of Paul and Silas, and Timothy and Paul and Silas, this same Silas. The name Silas means man of the woods. And you ask Jeremy, how did you know that? Well, because I listened to the Justin Timberlake album, Man of the Woods. And in that, he has a son named Silas, and he named the album after his son. And then I checked with some commentaries, and it's true, that's what it means. (laughs) Just confessing to you all, just confessing and repenting. Now, this is a name given to somebody, um, a man who would be familiar with the forest, with the woods. A man who knew knows how to navigate the treacherous terrain of the forest. Who knows where the paths have been laid down. Who knows where the enemies lay and where it's safe and when it's not safe. Who knows where to find food and where not to eat the berries and and when to climb a tree and when to get in the water. And A man of the woods was somebody acquainted with all of that. So of all the people that Peter chose to write this letter for him was a man who knows. A man who's walked it, a man who knows where to find nourishment and food, and a man who knows where to, where to hide and when to fight, a man who knows the treacherous terrain that Peter has walked in. Notice Peter calls him a faithful brother." What he's saying, "Is this man has never given up on me? He knows the forest of my life, and he's navigated it before, and he is faithful. I trust him. Some of us today, you need a Silas in your life. Somebody who would say, I've been there. Oh, I know that forest, I know those woods. There's some of us today that God has actually put you in places to be that for somebody else. But for some reason, you've been reluctant to. You don't want to be that vulnerable. You don't want to share that side of your story. And I'm telling you right now, there's someone who's desperate for you to share your story. See, I've been there. It's rough, man. And here's what God did for me. Here's how he led me. Peter has a man of the woods to walk with him, a faithful brother. And he declares, this is it. This is the grace of God. You think grace looks like cupcakes and butterflies and Peter said, no, 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 grace looks like this too. Grace looks like Rome burning. Grace looks like Emperor Nero. Grace looks like your addiction. Grace looks like your marital problems. Grace looks like your financial situation. Grace looks like that too. That's the true grace of God. And I wanna encourage you today. There will be an after, and the God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and will establish you. Not because I read it, because I've been in those woods too. You bow your heads and close your eyes. There is a God of all grace a God who in his very nature is love. And his love is patient and kind. Does not envy or boast. It's generous. Does not keep record of wrongs. His love is for you. So maybe today what's happened for you is that you've been in the woods so long that you don't, can't believe that God is actually for you. And I'm here to tell you today that's a lie from the enemy. He is for you. And he's seeking you. And if today you don't know this Jesus, you've never experienced this God of all grace, that opportunity is available for you today. Today is the day of salvation. You would admit that you aren't perfect. You aren't entitled. That you're a sinner too. And you've broken the very heart of a God who created you. And you've sinned against him. And yet in his great grace, he has made a way for you. And what you've been feeling in the void of your heart is a way to get back in union with God. And you've tried to fill it with a number of things, with relationships and uh, education and finances and cars and houses, beauty. And you know it's all left you empty. But the God of of all grace himself will meet you there. If you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the one who can save you. And through that, salvation gives you back into right union with God. He will satisfy your soul. You would confess with your mouth that he is Lord. He has dominion over all. You would find salvation there. You can do it right now in your chair. Tell him you know who you are and you know who he is and you need him to save you today. There are some of us today who we've trusted the Lord in such a way, and yet we find ourselves in suffering. We begun to doubt whether or not he is for us. He's for you. You can cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you, so let him have it. All of it, all the pieces. There's an after coming for you. There's some of us in the room this morning Who have someone that you know is waiting for you to tell them about your after and your during to give a testimony of the grace of God this is gospel according to first Peter that suffering comes and yet God still wins God I thank you for this morning I thank you for worship through music, worship through giving. I thank you for the way that you so creatively and intentionally prepare our hearts to hear from you. So God, I pray that we have heard from you today. I pray that your word has gone out in power and in truth. I pray that we've uh, now we have tools, we have ways that we can plant our feet, stand firm in faith and resist the enemy. God, he has no business at our church We're yours. We are loved by you. We're called out by you. We're set apart by you. We're guarded by you. We are protected by you. God, I pray for the hearts and souls of people sitting in these chairs today people that I know are hurting and suffering, people who um, need somebody to tell them they're gonna make it, somebody to say, yeah, I've been there. More importantly, God, they just need the presence of the Spirit in their hearts to settle them. Remind them of an after. Remind them of your grace in the during that we might find a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus. It's in the powerful, kind name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.